Zero is accounting software that has all the features small business owners need to run a business successfully. To help ensure business success, Zero also partners directly with accounting and bookkeeping firms, giving them a suite of tools and training to become Zero experts to help them and confidently advise businesses. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor Zero later in the episode. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. This is Oh My Fraud, a true crime podcast, but instead of Inspector Jacques Clouseau, we have Jacques Clouseau CPA. Hello, I'm Caleb Newquist. And hello, I'm Greg Kite. We're so glad to have you on the ep- joining us for this episode today. We are. It's kind of a different episode, Greg. Yeah, it is. Tell them why. Well, it's an interview or a conversation that we had uh, with Francine McKenna, who I've known for quite a while. And Greg, I've never met in real life. Yeah. But you were you are you are brothers from another mother of going concern, sort of, right? <laughs> right. Sibling. I just say siblings from another uh, parent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Maybe that was maybe not as elegant as it could have been. But any case, mine didn't but rhyme. Anyway, um, you're good. You're good. We get yeah. it. Anyway, if you've worked at a big four firm over the last I don't know 10, 15 years and like kept up with you know the the chisme. On uh, in the accounting world, uh, chances are you've probably uh, read Francine's work. She's been an independent journalist covering the big four accounting firms, and she mostly focuses on audit. And she's published at Forbes. She was a columnist at Forbes for a long time, or had a column at Forbes, American Banker, Financial Times. Her blog is called Read the Auditors. Uh, I think it's now a part of her Substack, which is called The Dig. So if you like newsletters, get her her newsletter at Substack. But she was also a transparency reporter at MarketWatch from 2015 to 2019. And uh, she's soon to be uh, joining the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton School of Business there. So she's big time. Yeah. If we're going to have a guest on this podcast, we got ourselves a legit guest on this podcast. And Caleb, yeah. I'm excited to... Because we had an incredibly engaging conversation with Francine, and apparently, according to our producer, we're just going to parachute into the portion of the conversation where we were talking about the effect of COVID on auditing. So with no further ado, join us in our interview in progress with the one and only Francine McKenna. It's not clear what the next step is because... Nothing is coming back in a consistent, smooth, predictable way. Right. People are still expected to go out to their clients, and we were all set up to work remotely, but not necessarily. But but the expectations are still go go to the clients, and then you don't know what's going on with the clients. I swear, near the beginning of the pandemic, I read a couple of things, maybe in the Journal of Accountancy, about how that screw in with like specifically like inventory audits and and the whole you know, existence assertion of auditing standards. But I just read something that says, yeah, this is hard. And people are kind of doing a couple things that are interesting. And what what's happened with all that? Well, we've had a lot of mixed messages from that. So in the lead up, 
you had people expecting to hear, how is this all going to work? How are companies going to do the work with everybody remote and maintain the controls over all of the processes? And then how are auditors going to come in at year end? And now we're, you know, we're at two year ends, right? Where there might be a lot of places where everybody is still remote that works there. And the auditors are like, can I or can I not go there in person? And we thought that we were going to hear a lot more about how exactly that happened. You know, like how did they make up for the fact that you can't look at stuff or look people in the eye or, you know, do things physically? And I actually wrote, uh, co-authored an update for ISACA on Sarbanes-Oxley controls for IT auditors. And there was a whole big section that we wanted to talk about, well, what happened at last year end and what can we expect going forward? And what was clear is that we did not get a lot of guidance from the PCAOB, from the audit regulator. We did not really hear a lot from the firms in terms of practically how did they do this, which tools. I remember an editor actually had came back to me and said, do you know whether or not the audit firms actually used any kind of, you know, remote cameras right. or, you know, or how did, you know, how did they actually like view what was going on with the clients and stuff? And the thing is, is that it was never explicit. So then you had a whole bunch of people saying, wow, you know, so what's going to happen with the inspections of the audits from 2020, uh-uh. right? Yeah, with the PCOB inspections. Like, how in the world could we have good audit quality given the fact that this whole thing was up up in the air? Right, because, and, and, and just to make sure I, I understand what you because I remember that from the little thing I, I read was that some of the like inventory audits could be like, okay, you, you will we'll FaceTime this whole thing and you turn your camera right. around and I'm going to ask you to point your camera at certain things right. and you do that. And, and it totally brings back to my mind that it's the case that I, I, I assume we all studied in school of the company that had like the, the salad oil that kept the salad oil in the right drugs, where yeah, it's like, you could totally salad oil with very little, skill right. at filmmaking or, right or zzz best who was shipping bricks right you know so right that, so you had this expectation that one it was going to be hard at the companies to do things with all of their people remote then secondly the auditors come in and how are the auditors going to do an audit if they can't come in yeah right yeah. so and i always talk about things like tone at the top like in the end the auditor has to look at the CFO and the CEO and the board and the audit committee, and they have to look them in the eye and they have to make sure that they believe that what they're getting from management is true and, and real. And you want to look people in the eye, right? And we all know the, ch- the challenges of video and Zoom and, and all the different you know video tools. It's not the same thing as being in a room, being in a conference room. And confronting people or looking people in the eye. So then we we looked and said, okay, the audits took place in 2020. The companies produced results. And then the PCOB came in and inspected. And we had one firm, P- uh, PwC, that had had a really lousy 2019 inspection results situation. Like unexpectedly lousy mm-hmm. compared to previous years. Like suddenly they were in the doghouse on the defensive. Their head of audit, Wes Bricker, who used to be at the SEC, started talking about how they were going to have almost a perfect score. He knew from like January 1, 2021, 
that they were going to have a perfect score. It's like, <laughs> how does that happen with all of this other stuff that's going on? And right. lo and behold, they produced the inspection results for the 2020 audits about a month ago or so. Caleb, correct me if I'm wrong. And Deloitte and PwC had almost perfect results. That sounds like that sounds like a, a classic corruption right there. He still knew somebody and he pulled some strings, right? Well, it's, well they're, or, just, they're just studying to the, the are they just studying to the test, right? No, oh, well, there you go. You know, that's that was the KPMG issue. But the question is, is did they relax the inspection standards? Right. Did they say Everybody gets a pass. Right. Companies get a pass because of COVID, for yeah. their financial reporting. Auditors, you need to give the companies a pass. Mm. And regulators, you need to give the auditors a pass. Did everybody get a pass because of COVID and pandemic and this lack of access? But when are we going to see this gerbil come out the other end of the boa constrictor? <laughs> when are we going to see this, this lousy financial reporting, lousy auditing come out the other end? And, right. and and show up with you know, this you know is going. frauds and yeah. restatements and all of that. I guess I guess you know where's it, it going, Caleb? It, well, I think if fraud occurs, then we'll just get we'll just give the perpetrators a pass. No, fraud was right, fraud, right, was, fraud right. was allowed in 2020. It's, it was right. a hard time. It's, it's a hard time for everyone. <laughs> some people maybe did some things they shouldn't. It's all understandable. So right. fraud, you get a pass. It's the we were all under pressure. It's right? the yeah, purge. No, it's the movie The Purge, but it's just <laughs> a long form. So where you you've got you've got two years until until we get the right the right amount of booster shots. You've got that is amount of time. Is it only two to, years? What's that? Is it only is it only two years? I mean, we're going on two years right, now. Right. So now we're going to have twenty twenty one results. We're still in a limbo situation. When is this gonna? Well, yeah, Sir. I mean that's the that's the question everyone wants to know. Not just because they want better audit results, <laughs> results but because they want to go to a movie. Yeah, they so, want to go to the movies to see and the not purge, have to wear to bring a mask. Their, right, exactly. Be able to sit next to a stranger like we used to do. So, Francine, I have. So, I'm curious. Do you? I was I was trying to look through your archive today just to see how many articles that you've written about fraud in the last 15 years or so. I mean, do you have any idea? Like it's got to be, it's, it's certainly dozens, maybe, maybe hundreds. Well, it would be interesting to divide them between the ones that, the ones that I wrote after there was some kind of enforcement action or, or legal action versus the ones where we wrote about it and it just kind of fizzled out and nothing happened. So I think about the cases like Herbalife, you know, where nothing really happened. Right. Valiant, where nothing happened, Valiant, which is Bausch Health, where nothing happened until Years later, and it was a dribbled, you know, just sort of a little thing. I've written probably thousands of articles. If if you were to go to the blog, the legacy blog, read the auditors, I can count the number of posts, although some of them are, you know, are not my lengthy, detailed reporting. But I probably have 2,500 posts. I tell people that I probably have 10 million words mm. on that legacy blog. And that's with stopping posting actively there when I started working at Market Watch in 2015. It's one thing. It's one one because I write long, but two because during that period of 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, I got in at the beginning of an amazing situation in terms of people 
actually paying attention to accounting and audit. And that is, you know, the beginning of the crisis. I couldn't have picked a better time to start writing and try to get people to pay attention to accountants. Right. It wasn't easy at the beginning, but as they started paying attention, really the Lehman case, the Lehman Ernst and Young case was the catalyst. I could have written three things every day. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And I feel like it's that way right now. I have a list. Actually, I had to sit still last night because there were so many things going through my head, so many people calling, so much stuff going on on Twitter. I had to sit and make a current like editorial to-do list, and I probably have 10 things on the list. I put two in the pipeline last night in terms of actually asking for comments. So you got to work, you know, as you know, Kelv, you got to work ahead because I still follow the journalistic process and, you know, ask for comments and let people know and et cetera. I have a couple of people working with me, one in particular who's a data journalist. So he's throwing stuff at me constantly. He, he likes to write about crypto and GameStop, you know, all the uh, Robin Hood the meme and stuff. So, sort yep. of the new stuff. Yeah, the meme stuff. And he's always looking at, you know, sentiment analysis and what happened next in terms of companies that are spacking or IPOing, you know, tech. I mean, so there's just an enormous amount of stuff to write about. And Jim Chanos, um, you know, the famous uh, short uh, seller is on Twitter constantly saying this is a golden age of fraud. We are really, really out of control right now. Really out with, of control. With fraud and, specifically? With fraud and with the complacency, or as I say, you know, specifically with regard to the auditors and auditor independence, it's the regulators are just playing whack-a-mole. Okay. Um, they cannot keep up. They cannot, you know, address stuff fast enough. They still are approaching things with the same old diligent, you know, legal process. They're still entertaining, you know, crap from the defense lawyers. They're still, and everything takes way too long. And we're not taking people out of the game. So they keep slapping wrists and then they wonder why these people pop up somewhere else doing something like the SPACs. I mean, if you went through the SPACs, the hundreds, thousands of SPACs that have come in the last 18 months, you can easily find bad actors from previous uh, enforcement actions. They're all over the place. And yet, why can they do this? Why can they become officers or directors of new, potentially public companies? Because when they were called out before, the SEC did not take them out of the game, did not give them a bar. Why do we have Elon Musk now contemplating going back again and being chairman of Tesla? Why is he named Time Man of the Year? So it seems like, so if, if it's the golden age of fraud and the article that you wrote or the newsletter that you wrote, I guess it's been a couple of months ago now about basically there's this myth, you call it a myth that uh, auditors don't have an obligation to find fraud. Then I think the, the lagging indicator on this stuff will be some shitty auditing, right? I think so. And we've already seen that. Yeah, I mean, we've already seen that. So I wrote another article, uh, an op-ed for the Financial Times that showed up last week, and it was about non-GAAP, non-standard metrics. So this is a global problem. This is a problem all over the place, right? You have companies reporting everything but the standard accounting metrics, GAAP or IFRS. 
And they're crowding out the actual accounting numbers with all of this other alternative stuff. And the regulators, again, are helpless to do anything about it until it gets to be super egregious. I've told a lot of um, potential, you know, whistleblowers or, you know, these these amateur research analysts, you are not going to get anybody to pay attention to non-GAAP abuses unless it translates into the executives trying to make out on their compensation, unless it goes all the way. In other words, they're using those alternative metrics in order to goose executive comp. That's where the SEC has stepped in. That's where, you know, there've been lawsuits and et cetera. But otherwise, the standard setters, the FASB and uh, IFRS are kind of helpless. Like more disclosure is their solution. Or in the case of the U.S., oh, well, then that must mean gap is not good enough. Let's just create another project for FASB that's going to take 14 years to, right. you know, to be realized in some <laughs> of our team crap that they need to send out 92 white papers in terms of guidance. And so they're just kind of stymied because we're allowing companies to produce earnings reports that are devoid of actual accounting numbers. They hmm. may have them at the bottom. They may have them mixed in. But the focus is always, how do I want to tell the story? It's a narrative. Right. And you see that with to the extreme in uh, GameStop meme stuff. It doesn't matter. You see that to the extreme in crypto. It doesn't matter what's going to happen even next week. What's important is, how do I take advantage of the trade right now? So you you point out in that newsletter since you mentioned sta- you mentioned accounting standards and you point out in that that newsletter edition from October you point out like the auditing standards make it pretty clear right and so wait make, seems, wait make what clear well the auditing standards say that that audits have to be there, there has to be a risk assessment and they and keep me honest here but it's there has to uh-huh. be a risk assessment um, and and planning of procedures to uh, detect material misstatements due to error or fraud. And so that's part of what audits are designed. That's what part of audits are designed to do. But if I hear you right, like the companies, their focus is on telling a story that they want to tell about their business. And so if, if a, if an auditor says, well, that there's not really a big audit, there's not really a big fraud risk there. They can design it however they want. And as Greg has pointed out to me in the past, it's like, if somebody says that something isn't their job, then, then I'm going to take them at their word that it isn't their job. So how are they, how are they fulfilling their duty, but also abdicating? They're basically abdicating their duty, but fulfilling it. They're basically checking the box, but then abdicating (laughs) the substance of what they're really supposed to do. Is that kind of where you fall? So let's, let's think about it from a hierarchy perspective. Okay. Why do companies exist? Okay, public companies exist because they're producing results, and those results translate into a share price that their shareholders and other stakeholders benefit from, right? So the company is focused on the share price, and that is a whole another you know, discussion about shareholder primacy and focusing on the share price in terms of why are you even in business as a public company, okay? But- if you focus on the share price as the as the ultimate metric of whether you are a successful company and you're driving everything towards 
how do I fulfill this goal of the share price? That has absolutely nothing to do with the auditor, the quality of the auditor, the quality even of the underlying accounting anymore. Because companies can drive the share price and can drive the perception hmm. of the company's uh, success via metrics that are completely divorced, as I say in the FT uh, column, completely divorced from the fundamentals, re re divorced from the reality of the accounting numbers. Hmm. So you have non-get metrics, alternative metrics that are transforming losses into adjusted profits. You have alternative metrics that are decreasing uh, losses or increasing marginal profits that are making companies able to beat uh, analyst estimates, which are established on an alternative metric basis, beat alter uh, uh, analyst estimates, not just match them, but beat them not just by a penny or two, like Jack Welsh used to shoot for at GE, but beat them by 10, 15 cents. In other words, you get the big, the big oomph, you know, so that you get that one day earnings release, you know, movement of the stock that everybody takes advantage of. Volatility, traders love volatility. And these retail traders that are operating on a mean basis or these other opportunists in other markets like crypto are operating on volatility, okay? It doesn't matter whether it goes up and down. It matters whether it moves a lot. Mm. And so being able to move the narrative, they don't, the audit doesn't matter at all. So the ultimate example of where the audit doesn't matter at all, or if the auditors detect or don't detect fraud, or whether there even is fraud, are the companies that were never audited at all, like Theranos. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. You have people investing an enormous amount of money and never asking for audited financial statements. This episode of Oh My Fraud is sponsored by Zero. If you love listening to this podcast, you've learned that systems and processes could have prevented many of the frauds we've discussed. Having an accounting system like Xero can help a business create the processes it needs so that it can avoid becoming a future Oh My Fraud episode. Xero lets you set up multiple users, each with their own login and password, so you can accurately assign the proper access to each user. When it comes to accounts payable, Xero pushes all bills through a built-in approval process. Xero's expense management tools ensure that employees only get reimbursed for approved expenses. And because Xero connects directly to banks, you can reconcile and match transactions daily to ensure that any money coming and leaving the bank accounts is what you expected. To become a Zero partner and gain access to free tools, benefits, and rewards for your practice, head over to ohmyfraud.promo slash zero. That's ohmyfraud.promo forward slash X-E-R-O. It's never demanding audited financial statements. Right. So was and the company ends up with seven billion, you know, or you know, multi-billion dollar valuations. And you have the same thing with companies that have been serial problematic companies like GameStop or Activision or you know, uh, I mean, you name it. There, uh, every gaming stock, okay, I've written about in Market Watch, and. Over and over and over again, they abuse the gap accounting and they even abuse the alternative metrics. And yet 
they're being uh, uh, viewed as, as, as a trading opportunity because the management is able to change the narrative by just telling the market whatever they want on earnings day. Right. But, but, ju- but just to make sure that I'm clear on this, cause, cause I would assume if any company, if, if any company received less than an unqualified opinion from the auditor, that, 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 that never happened. That, that never happens. R- right. But it doesn't happen. Okay. <laughs> right. So which, which that right there is, is the whole point you're trying to make that the audits don't matter because no one ever gets anything except an unqualified opinion. It's kind of a right. It, it's like Wobegon. Okay, all the children are above average. Uh. <laughs> if an auditor is ready to is ready to impose a material weakness in internal controls, Caleb, you know this. We've seen over and over the auditor gets fired. Right. And they hire some. They hire another big four auditor who's ready to jump in there and work with their company to figure out how to work around it. And even if they if they report a material weakness or a restatement. It's like, oh, old news. Thank you to BooksTime for sponsoring this episode. Finding top quality talent is hard. Managing bookkeepers takes time and energy. Let BooksTime do that hard work for you. With BooksTime, you get a dedicated team of experienced, tech-savvy, and responsive bookkeepers. The size of your team will scale to meet your needs, even if your needs change. You'll never again have to worry about recruiting, training, or managing bookkeepers again. BooksTime is extremely picky about who they hire, carefully evaluating bookkeepers to ensure they are knowledgeable, accurate, detail-oriented, and reliable. BooksTime rejects about 99% of candidates. You get to work with the top 1%. Contact BooksTime for a free, no-obligation consultation. They'll answer all your questions and work with you to determine whether your firm is a good fit for their white-label partner program. To learn more, visit bookstime.com accountants that's B-O-O-K-S-T-I-M-E dot com slash accountants. Grow your profits and shrink your workload with books time. Lordstown, Lordstown, I wrote about a few months ago. That was a perfect example where you had Lordstown, you know, just nonstop, you know, creating narrative. Uh-huh. And yet it had all kinds of crap hidden under the covers and when they were forced to restate their accounting because of the SPAC uh, warrant issue, where you know the SEC said all the SPACs have to restate all their warrants from uh, equity to liability, they issued a amended 10K and then shoved a whole bunch of stuff into that amended 10K, including a going concern warning, material weaknesses. <laughs> Additional corrections that caused them to go into a going concern situation. And they thought, oh, it's an amended 10K. Nobody even reads the Ks or the Qs. Nobody even is going to read an amended 10K. And they thought they were going to get away with that. The only reason why they didn't get away with it is because Lordstown was such a highly scrutinized stock that there are, you know, anal retentive nerd, you know, <laughs> uh, analysts, ty- wannabes. Who are watching every single you know thing that's written, even if it's on a post-it note about some of those companies? So they spotted that in the stock tank. But Lordstown's still going. They fired the executives, but those guys still sold stock yeah. when they did when they were faking it for umpteen months before they actually acknowledged all these other problems. They hid SEC investigations. Hmm. 
within that amended 10K. So they had a whole bunch of stuff that they had never disclosed. And they tried to hide it in an amended 10K because they knew or thought nobody looks at the filings. Hmm. All anybody pays attention to, for the most part, uh, in terms of active traders, is the earnings releases. So it kind of sounds like, and maybe I'm overstating this a bit, but like it almost sounds like we're in kind of a, it's co- kind of a postmodern era, right? So if the modern era was that you have these <laughs> SEC filings and you and you have these rules and people follow all these rules, but now if none of that stuff matters, but it's all still going on, like it's kind of evolved to this point where. It's, it, I don't know, this, it, it, I'm kind of perplexed. What is it? What is I it when you have, it's it's like some, what is it when you have a whole book of rules and nobody pays attention to them, but nobody gets punished for not paying attention it's, to them? It's yeah. postmodernism where it nothing like matters post-modern- and everything's fake. Right. Like that's, po- <laughs> is, uh, that feels like postmodernism. So there's a term, there's a term, yeah, there's a term, um, that I learned uh, as a fellow at the Stigler Center at University of Chicago booth um, a, a few years ago. There's a there's an active um, effort in some cases by companies to make sure there's a certain level of regulation and a certain level of regulator activity in order to give the market the appearance that there's something regulatory going on. <laughs> Okay. It, so wait, there's a term. Yeah. Somebody got came up with a term. You want a facade. Yeah. But but the but the regulators are captured. Yeah. And the regulation process, the regulatory process is corrupt. Yeah. Because they're of the revolving door and regulatory capture. Yep. So you have this appearance of right. Re- so this is why the tech companies are now so actively um lobbying and getting involved in regulation over privacy. This is why the crypto firms are right now trying to propose their own structure for regulation of the Mm -hmm. crypto Mm -hmm. uh, industry. Okay, they're trying to create a a, a structure that gives the appearance that regulation is going on. So then they are on, they have cover. Mm -hmm. Then they can operate within that structure that they know is captured or corrupt, or, or that they designed themselves, by the regular that they that they wrote themselves, right, right, yeah, right. So that that's what happened with the PCAOB, right. The the uh. I wrote uh, 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 several months back when Trump was trying to uh, mold or push the PCAOB into the SEC. They thought, oh, budget, whatever, like there's duplicative activity push the PCOB back into the SEC, right? That was the original idea that some people had when Sarbanes-Oxley was passed. I remember. Uh, Harvey Pitt was a big proponent of that. They never wanted a separate independent agency. However, that's kind of not a good idea for the firms, for the, for the largest global accounting firms. Why? Because if you eliminate the, a, a separate independent regulator, then you've sort of told the markets and told everybody else and the critics and the consumer and the investor protection people, there is no separate regulator. Right. Okay. Yeah. But if you create a separate regulator, but it's one that's weak and captured and affected by the revolving door and can be completely uh, uh, corrupted by a firm like KPMG, then 
you get to operate and continue to operate whatever way you want. Mm. Right. Okay. So it's But people to me, think that there's a regulatory process. I think I have they the word think for there's it, inspections. They think there are people with their eye in the box. I think I have the word what, for it. What's right? what's the word, Caleb? The word what for it, I think, is nihilism. I think that's where we're at. Does that sound right? Yeah. I have that. <laughs> I wrote that down. I wrote down I wrote nihilistic down. accounting. It's on I've my been... notes. It's on my notes. This is a podcast <laughs> right. that I just Look, held right, up. Yeah, my me, notes. me too. <laughs> me too. Nihilistic. I have it underlined now, too. So, oh my gosh. But okay. You're reading too much Camus. <laughs> okay, yeah, we here here's a Caleb, should we should we turn the corner cuz we we actually we we wanted to orchestrate a fight uh Francine between you and me okay. about uh about fraud and the detection thereof uh in okay. the audit setting because because we uh, Caleb sent me an article that you wrote where uh, which which apparently is one of many where you're like, "Damn it, auditors this fraud was it was hanging right in front of you, and you didn't do a like, damn thing. Get about over it. yourself. Yeah, yeah. And then, and and for me, I'm I'm very much of the opinion that at this point in time, and 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 I'm I'm trying to divorce it of, of whether it's right or wrong. But what we found is that we've got audit firms; they're not selling to clients their ability to catch fraud. They're selling to clients their that they can navigate the complexities of audit standards to come to a, a result. So for me, I liken it to, so I just had a, I had a plumbing problem like a week ago where I had a, I had a, a leak come. I, I was trying to fix my toilet. I, I, I had overconfidence in my own abilities. I, I, I pull the, the hose that goes from the wall to the toilet off. That was leaking. I was like, no problem. I got this, this cap and I, I ended up stripping the, the, the threads. I had to get a plumber that came over to my house at 10 o'clock at night. So I didn't flood my basement with this whole thing. And they came over and they, they did the job I wanted. They came in and they fixed the pipe so that my, my basement didn't break. I'm not going to go back to the next week and go, why the hell didn't you tell me that my water heater was about to go out too? Because that's not what I hired him for. I hired him for the leak. So I, I liken that to the auditors where I'm hiring you to make sure that my my books are devoid of material weakness, regardless of where it comes from, fraud or anything else. So let's So let's think about your water heater potentially going out as a golden concern warning. Because it's a matter of judgment and discretion. You're going to look at it and you're going to say they were in there to fix something else. And maybe somebody happened to see your water heater and they looked and they said, you know, this thing is quite old, right? He bought this is like 20 years mm -hmm. old, this water heater. And I see some corrosion, blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't look like he's got this under warranty. And there's a little bit of leaking down here. And, you know, in my judgment, this could last another five years or it could blow tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. So what do I do? And they already were in and they were giving, they're going to give you an expensive bill for the pipes. Oh, and it was expensive. It, I could have, and, I could have bought a whole right. new toilet and I'm smart enough to just replace the whole damn thing. I got, right. I could have got like a Donald Trump level toilet for the amount they charged right. me and to you fix said, the You said, man, you know, we got, we got two bathrooms here and you put one out of commission while you fix this. And my wife is going to bitch at me. And so, you know. <laughs> Get the hell out of here as fast as you can. I don't want you hanging around. Right. I got things to do, places to go, and we got poop to yeah, do. Yeah, okay? it's 10 at, so, 10 at night. I got to go to bed. Get out. Yeah. Right? 
I don't want to spend any more money or time no. on this situation, you know, the necessary. Don't be trying to upsell me to, you know, the gold standard or whatever yeah. of anything. Except, except if these guys spot this, if they're there uh-huh. and they see this and they look at you and they look at you and your nine kids and your wife. I, I am in, I am in Utah. Is that a dig at Utah that I have nine kids? And, and you know, and they go, what could happen to this family if we don't say anything and we let this water heater blow? Yeah, they'll call us. It'll be an emergency. It'll be winter. We'll really, really, you know, rake it in. But is this really something we should do? Should we let this go just because we don't want to hear this guy bitching at us for spending a little bit more time or trying to get him to spend a little bit more money now and he might not want it, okay? And this is the exact situation that the auditors are in. Let me go back to uh, Caleb asked me about the article I wrote, which is basically repeating something I've written over and over again from probably 10 years ago. I'm trying to remember when the PCOB first put this document out, but I was sitting at a, a standing advisory group meeting, you know, their advisory group one day, and they put fraud on the agenda. And I was like, holy Toledo. And I was in D.C. and I'm sitting at this meeting. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a really spicy conversation. And instead, it was a conversation about the reporting of how the auditor does or doesn't tell the client what or what they're not doing about fraud. Right. But underneath the covers, okay, not for public view on that day, but available to the public later, they had put together a comprehensive, incredible document that was my dream <laughs> document, which is let's go back and look at every single standard related to auditing that relates to the assessment, planning, detection, and post-realization of fraud at a client. Okay. And it's an amazing document because it references every single standard and law that was in place at the time. Some of them have been updated, but in general, the, the whole spectrum is still exists. All the way from, do you even accept an engagement with a client that you know is a problem, problem child? So let's say, for example, when Herbalife had to look for a new auditor because the KPMG partner there was inside trading against its information, Scott London. And Herbalife said, man, you know, we're going to have to find a new auditor. But that wasn't everything that they were, they were dealing with. They were also under an enormous siege by Ackman, the short seller, who was saying it was a total multi-level marketing fraud. It was trying to get the SEC and the DOJ to shut them down for good, right, as a multi-level marketing fraud. And then there were hints that they were also having some bribery issues in uh, other parts of the right. world. Well, well wait, a, so, wait a second, just to make sure I'm, I'm clear. So you're saying that there was a short seller. So he had a, he had a financial interest in the demise of this company and he was the big push to get him to get him shut down. Well, there was like a lot of cases, uh, someone who had done the analysis and had determined that this company was potentially committing all kinds of fraud and breaking laws and was bringing that to the attention of the regulators and law enforcement and saying, this company should be put out of business. Now, 
you can argue whatever that he had a financial interest in doing that, but he was also highlighting the fact that, and, and reported it to the regulators, that this company was potentially violating laws and and fraudulently reporting its results, etc. Right. Oh, oh, just a second. so I'm not trying to besmirch that guy because I because it's a cart and horse kind of thing too. Because if I found out that some big company, like if I was like, oh, these guys are 100 percent committing fraud, I would want to short them too because the well, fraud's eventually going to implode them. He wasn't the only one. Okay. He was just the one that had. He was just the one that had the financial wherewithal to put a financial stake in putting money where his mouth right. is. Okay? Gotcha. But there were a lot of people who had heard for a long time said Herbalife had this, lots of issues. So all this was going on, and then they find out that the KPMG partner in charge in, in California was trading on information that he was obtaining from sitting in on their annual, annual meetings and other meetings. So they had to switch out KPMG, who had been their longtime auditor. You'd think like a problematic company like that might have trouble finding a new auditor, right? Who wants to take on this risk? Okay. Like you're going to have a lot of work to do. Mm. It's not going to be an easy road to hoe, except bing, bang, boom. PwC was in there, lickety split, took on the assignment, and they even had independence violations. PwC did? PwC was doing consulting work. Okay. For other uh, units of Herbalife, and the SEC gave them a pass because it was such an urgent situation. <laughs> it's kind of like COVID. So PwC walks in, right? So number one, do you even take on, okay, risky clients? Okay, do you even as a firm give them the benefit of your brand if they're a they're a bundle of Right. If they're okay. a turd, yeah. A big bowl, if they're right. a big bowl so, of fraud. Same, <laughs> right. So the same thing happened with uh, with the Chinese reverse mergers. Uh, okay. Yeah. You name it, there's lots of examples of that. You have companies that are very problematic, that have had lots and lots of stuff going on, that have investigations of this, of that. They're potentially going to be delisted from U.S. exchanges like all the Chinese companies. And yet there is no shortage of companies, of firms, even big four firms, that are willing to be their auditor. So the first question is acceptance and continuance. The firm has an obligation under the standards to really look at, kick the tires and say, do we want to take on this, this company's audit? Do we have the skills and abilities and staffing? Do we have the knowledge and experience in that industry? Do we have the ability to go to all the locations that it has? Do we want to, you know, Deal with the management who maybe is a, a bunch of jerks, okay? Or just or, or just shady characters, before. or just shady characters. Well, whatever. Well, in many cases, it's very clear that some of the management have done other things before, right? So that's step number one. Then, okay, we can take it on. We're ready, okay? We got we're a big firm. We got a lot of good people. We can we can we we know what to do with these people. And we can stand up to them, right? And we're going to do our public duty and we're going to take this audit on because it's important to protect the shareholders in the markets. So they take on that audit. Then they go in and they say, okay, we need to plan our first year audit. And we need to look at what the previous auditor did. And we need to plan this audit, keeping in mind that it needs to be planned with an eye towards whether or not there is a risk of material misstatement due to error or fraud. Mm. And we need to do all the kind of 
what do they call it? Uh, uh, sitting around the campfire. The brainstorming. Stuff. The yeah. assessment. The brainstorming yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Stuff. And, and what we found in many cases, and there's lots of academic research, is that the firms go through that brainstorming process and they document a whole bunch of crap, and then they never change the audit plan. Mm. They never change the procedures or the or the or the processes or the tests that they're going to do. They never expand the scope. They never go back to the client and say, you know, this is a little bit more uh, risky or a little bit more difficult. Or you know what, that unit down in Brazil or in yeah. China, we need to put that in. If the I scope. if I may, if that, many 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 times. That, that seems like that would actually be the funnest part of the audit, where you're just kind of sitting around and you're saying. Let's come up with some crazy things that aren't really that crazy. Let's imagine, that, yeah. But, but, yeah. but, uh, but yeah. also aren't that crazy, right? Like you say, well, they got this Brazilian unit and they seem to have hired uh, mercenaries and or maf local mafia to <laughs> uh, do parts of their business. That seems yeah. like, should we go check? And like what you're saying is, if you have that conversation <laughs> and you cook up the craziest ideas possible, but they're not that crazy, they're actually plausible, what you're saying is they're doing all that, but then they don't change the audit plan. It's like, you know what? That mafia, we changed our minds. We think they're good guys. And we're just going to, you know, just do what we right. planned originally. So the classic case of that recently is Wirecard. Oh, yeah. You have stuff happening all over the place with Wirecard. You have lots of news reports that the people that they're doing business with are potentially, you know, shady characters and that they're accepting payments for all kinds of adult entertainment and gambling and <laughs> right. they're, you know, partnering with people that have organized crime activities. And yet Ernst and Young Germany didn't do anything different. In fact, they shut down uh, whistleblowers within yes. their own firm mm. who were telling them, you know, I think this is a straw man. You know, I think there's a related party here that's doing this stuff. You know, I don't think these clients exist that they're telling you, you know, exist. They got the German regulator to go after the short sellers and the and the journalists that were right. that were covering yeah. and the journalists yeah. to say the journalists were in cahoots with the short sellers. <laughs> so that's only two steps. Okay, <laughs> this document that the PCOB put together starts with the beginning, which is should you even take the client on? Right. Okay. Right. Number two, when you take the client on and you look at it and you scope out like how how are we going to staff this audit and what are we going to have to do and you know how much are we going to charge them? Maybe we need to be realistic and we need to actually like go back to the client and tell them when we find out or realize, huh, you know, maybe we need to do more work here in order to do a good job. Then you do the audit and you actually find stuff. Uh -huh. Okay. Then what do you do? Okay. So there's a whole set of standards. Okay. Of how do I assess the materiality of that particular situation? And we had a whole speech uh, a couple days ago last week when we had the AICPA SEC PCOB conference in DC. And we had the chief of enforcement from the SEC say, you know, I really don't understand why these auditors, these gatekeepers, are letting crap get through that is fundamental. Hmm. Like the stuff that they've been doing enforcement actions for recently at Kraft Heinz, at, you know, he named a whole bunch of cases recently. It's fundamental stuff. Where were the auditors? He said that in the speech. Where were the auditors? Like it was that blatant. How did they, how did they and, and why are they making assessments of materiality that is only based on quantitative? The standard, you know, 10% or 5% test. They're not looking at the qualitative, like 
maybe the people that are in charge of this operation are known criminals. So I want to bring something okay. up here. They're not looking at the door. How would, how would the investors view if they found out that Wirecard had been doing business with shady, you know, payment processors in the Philippines and never went down to the Philippines to actually check the bank balances? I want to bring something up that Greg and I talk about a lot. And what, but what you're describing, so everything you're saying makes sense to me. And so what Greg, Greg and I do a lot of ethics webinars. And the thing that is the coming to mind for me, Greg, is that if they focus on this quantitative, the quantitative aspect of the fraud and they say, well, you know, it's immaterial, but Greg, if we talk about it in an ethical context, $1 of fraud is $1 too many, right? If you talk about it in the qualitative sense, and it also primes that company or primes that unit, wherever the fraud is occurring that primes that particular aspect of the enterprise to perhaps engage in more suspicious or untoward activity, which means that it has the potential to fester beyond the $1 of an, of original fraud, right? You, you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, absolutely. Fe- yeah, festers and grows. You, you, it's kind of like, it's, it's opening Pandora's box. You crack it open and then you go, oh, nothing bad happens. So then you, you continually open it wider and wider Right. Um, till you get till you get massive scale fraud. If you think about it in that way, doesn't the question of materiality become very different? Well, in materiality with fraud, and Francine, you, you I mean, you know this as well. There is no materiality threshold when it comes to fraud. If you find a dollar of fraud, it's it's fraud. Not 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 necessarily. There's no materiality threshold for Foreign Corrupt Practice Act for bribery. That is illegal activity. But when it comes to fraud, if you're like, let's say in GE, and you're down in some teeny weeny little unit in uh, Long Island or something like that, and you have a secretary who is embezzling, you know, $10,000 or whatever, mm-hmm. to GE, that's immaterial. Yep. But to that particular company and to the business unit, it's illegal activity. And certainly, if you're an auditor and you were to find out about that, you have an ethical and, and, and a legal obligation as a licensed professional to raise that up. But that doesn't mean that it's going to show up in the audit report. Right. Okay? That doesn't mean that you're going to give them a, 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 some kind of a, a compromised opinion. It means that you're, you, know, you have to watch, you have to look at these situations, and you have to make judgments. But you can't ignore as a professional. So when we're talking about auditors looking the other way when something is qualitatively material. In other words, investors really would care if they found out that this situation, this would move the stock versus something that is a huge number that actually has a significant impact on the on the financial balances, the balance sheet or the income statement balances. When it comes to making a decision about whether an auditor should highlight that, raise that up, adjust their procedures, look at whether they can trust management. It's all the same. All right? It's all the same. Yeah, so let's go back to you're in the middle of the audit and something comes up and it's sort of on the on the border, okay? You're not really sure. Is it material to the financial statements in either a quantitative or a qualitative perspective, okay? Will this error or this fraud In other words, something that's going to misstate the financial statements because of an error or fraud. Is this something that the auditor needs to like 
address in terms of changing its procedures and potentially like highlighting in the financial uh in the in the opinion maybe look at like a a critical audit matter right. mentioned you know like this is a highly risky area because you know we've seen sort of slippage here or whatever what should we do so what do they usually do well that's what the national offices of the firms are for right you call up the national office partners and you say i need a consultation do you want a formal consultation or an informal consultation? What's the difference? Well, an informal consultation is I call my buddy that I think, you know, may give me a good, you know, reading on this, but it doesn't go in the record, doesn't go in the database, doesn't go, you know, I don't have to like <laughs> tell anybody whether he tells right. me, it's, yeah, you, it's, you, just, it's just a phone call. We talked about some things. It's so, you know, call. just uh, no big deal. Right. We, 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 you know, I get some, I, I bounce something yeah. off. My yeah. A formal consultation is we're at sort of a crossroad. We think this is an issue. The client is saying it's not an issue. It's holding up, continuing the audit or filing the financial statements. And we need to get an answer. We need to go to a higher power and get an answer. And you go to the national office and you get somebody on the line and you have a couple of phone calls or conference calls or whatever. And the national office guy says, what the heck are you doing? Okay, like this is a big client. We need to like find a way to work with these guys. How can we make this work? How can we make it work so that we're not giving them a hard time about this? How can we reinterpret or reorganize the accounting such that they can do what they want to do or this is not an error or we somehow net this against something else so that it doesn't pop out in a big way? So this is something that has been identified in enforcement actions at the PCOB and the SEC many, many, many times, but doesn't get much press. And that is when the actual guys that you're supposed to be calling for advice, who are supposed to be the, the arbiters of the firm standards and the auditing standards and the accounting standards, end up putting commercialism before professionalism. Mm. They put commercial interests of the firm, maintaining the client relationship, not making a CFO who's an alumni of our firm look bad, whatever. They put commercial interests before our professional, ethical, and standard requirements. It doesn't pop up that often. It happens all the time. There are many, many, many enforcement actions of this, and there's actually some academic research that talks about how does this happen, right? Why does this happen? Well, it's about the question of commercialism versus professionalism, which is a huge issue in the firms and is re resurfacing again as the, the advisory groups grow and, and surpass the audit practices in terms of money generators, the tax and the consultant. Yep. Why? Because the firms have an enormous amount of interest in maintaining these business relationships and make sh making sure that they don't make their alumni who are out at various companies look bad. And they are always torn in terms of the commercial versus the professional. And the worst case, the most egregious case of this was the KPMG scandal. Yeah, right. Where it was the guys in the KPMG national office. Yeah. The national office, the guys who are supposed to be in charge of making sure everybody else follows the rules who decided to steal regulatory data yeah. and do something illegal yeah. in order to polish their results. I mean, that's an extreme example. And But I guess what, what comes to mind for me is like, 
and 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 you can imagine this happening at firms of various scales but you have you have the partner out in the field who finds something weird and he goes to his superiors and say hey we found something weird what do we do an ideal scenario is the national the, the the national office if you're talking about a big firm or if you're talking about a firm leadership on a on a smaller scale the person they call up says, well, this looks pretty weird. Like, have you made, they might suggest additional procedures, additional inquiries, this and that, and whatever. But what you're saying is. Which costs time and money. Which costs time and money. <laughs> yeah. But what, you, but what you're saying is that it's the exact opposite. It, and, and you would expect the partner in the field to make the case of, well, this is an important client. This is an important relationship to me, et cetera, et cetera. But what you're saying is the opposite is happening. That when the conversations are happening, it's the people in the national offices. It's the it's it's the ones that are supposed to be the objective kind of. Did you think about this? Did you think about that? Uh, did you consider doing this? They're the ones like, well, we got to think about the we got to think about the business relationship here. We got to think about how important this is to our firm, and that strikes me as completely backwards. And I I don't know. You know, you say these. The it is it is back, yeah. it is backwards, and I wouldn't say it unless I had seen over and over again, and recently, national office professionals being part of the problem, not part of the solution. And that's not to say that a, a an engagement partner, a, a client partner, may be reluctant to call make a call because they know they're going to get an answer that says you really need to like push the client back on this or push back on this. But the other problem is that not one firm, not one of the big four firms, okay, says that the national office decisions on these issues are the ultimate decision. In the end, there's an enormous amount of respect for each partner and their franchise, their client portfolio, and nobody wants to take food out of somebody else's mouth. So if you in at the national office level, in many cases, at even the largest firms, the national office folks are not, that's not a terminal assignment. In other words, that's not just the elder statesmen who are going to retire in two years, who get to go and be completely objective and independent and be the grouchy <laughs> folks who, you know, don't, don't have to worry about the result. Right. In some cases, including in the KPMG case, those guys still had engagement responsibilities. Yeah. They were still collecting accountancy income from engagements. They are not completely separated from the commercial interests of individual clients and, and the practice. And they're at the top of the practice, so they're getting compensated on the success of the practice and the success of the firm overall in the end, right? They're getting bonused on all of that right. stuff. So sometimes you might have a partner who goes, man, you know, I really need some help. I need some backup. But what they're looking for is they're looking for backup, right? To go and talk to a tough client and try to do the right thing and keep everybody's uh, tail out right. of the fire. Right. Or at least but, or at least be able to say, right. I'd like to help you out, but national office says I can't. So Right. Right, 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 right. But in some cases, you've got obviously really good people, ethical people, smart people in the firms in all places, right? National office yeah. and at engagement yeah. levels. And you have people who want to do the right thing and they go and they ask a question and they realize, holy Toledo, like I never should have opened this can of worms. They're going to make me like back down because there's a commercial aspect to this or there's some other relationship aspect to this. 
Right. I mean, how many CFOs in public companies are alumni of one of the larger firms? Lots. Chief accounting officers. Certainly controllers. You know, you you call out a problem and you're making someone look bad. Right. You're ruining their career. Although maybe it, it rightly should be ruined. We're, we're getting close to the end of time. I've got a burning question that I want to ask you, Francine, while we got you. And that is this. It goes back to what you said earlier, where right now is the golden age of fraud. So with, with that in mind, I, I just want to know what your opinion is of what is, what is the best fraud for me to commit right now since <laughs> this is the golden age where I could, I could get the most money and I could, and I could uh, most likely evade any sort of repercussions. I'm torn between uh, create a token. Uh, crypto? Okay. Versus sponsor some SPACs. Ah. Okay. What, what's a SPAC? You, you said that before. I've got, oh, is that a non-fungible token? No, no, no. A special purpose acquisition vehicle. So it's basically a fancy reverse merger transaction where you have a, a bunch of people who have a brand name or experience in finance or venture capital or private equity or whatever, money people. And they go out and they say, you know, we're, you know, there's so much money floating around. There's so many rich people yeah. with money they don't know what to do right. with that. They go out and they raise, instead of raising a hedge fund, they raise money within an acquisition vehicle okay. that can go public with absolutely no operations, no revenues, no idea yet, theoretically, of how they're going to eventually become an operating company. But they raise money because they're such brilliant minds. Okay? Right, and, gotcha. And they, they, and they got Shaquille O'Neal. in uh, running other companies and <laughs> whatever and, and the celebrity thing just like in crypto the celebrity thing matters right yeah so you've got interesting people that you want to hang out with involved okay right so you want to be part of this this yeah, this clique i do right so you go out and you raise a bunch of money uh-huh. and you create a complex structure that includes uh warrants and a reverse uh transaction that's going to bring some operating company that's out there that's private that doesn't want to go through the full IPO S1 process and scrutiny by the SEC. So this non-operational, no revenue, no no shell goes through an IPO and then they merge with a private company that's already operational. So I wrote in uh, the newsletter about how Forbes Media, where I used to write, finally went public. Okay. Like they just could not sit out this this round, okay? They finally, finally went public. And Forbes had actually become uh, wholly owned by a Chinese investor. Okay. That's where they were. They were a private company wholly owned by a Chinese investor, a Hong Kong guy. And they wanted to go public, right? But they don't want to go through the whole process on their own, right? So they get another company, another set of Chinese investors, who are going to raise a bunch of money and they're going to give it to in a reverse merger. They're going to give it to the guys who were originally investing in the Forbes media outlet. And the neat thing about the SPAC process is that before the whole merger takes place or at the time that the merger takes place, or in the case of the Trump SPAC for his new media uh, company, 
you can actually take all the money off the table before the retail investors ever get involved. Okay, good. Or you take all the money off the table before, right at the merger when it occurs. Right, like as a commission. Like, because I'm so smart, I made this happen. So I... I made this, uh, yeah, yeah, deal maker kind of bonus, right? Yes. So the so the, so right now the Forbes thing is going to close early next year, but it's it's pretty much a done deal. But Forbes, the the premier media outlet, is now double whammy Chinese owned, right? It's got the primary investor, primary shareholder is a Hong Kong person, and the original guys who have brought the whole thing public, who are going to take the money out, are Hong Kong and. We're doing this in a period where we have all this rattling of cages about how we're going to kick Chinese companies off of the stock exchanges. Right. So that's a whole different element to this. But in the Trump situation, they're talking about the fact that Trump is going to get hundreds of millions of dollars out of this transaction. And you have people buying into this or who want to buy the shares as soon as it combines with the Trump media uh, entity, which is absolutely doesn't exist yet. And they're so enamored with supporting this effort that you're going to have a whole bunch of retail investors holding the bag later. But the savvy guys are taking all the money off the They'll table. They'll be long gone by the time even that happens. Even pre, we're actually going to take all the money off the table pre-merger. Right. Okay. So- it's like a money machine. The spec says a money machine. That's it. And the retail performance of the companies that have gone public in this process, somebody from Motley Fool put out a really nice chart where basically it goes from like negative 150% down to negative 20%. I mean, like in the last 18 months, uh, almost everybody that's gone public in this process ha- is a loser. From yeah. the, you know, yeah. from the investment right. performance perspective. Okay. Because they're not interested in what happens yeah. once the retail investors and once it gets on the exchange, they're interested in the deal making process and taking the money off the table and moving money around between ultra wealthy and private equity and VCs and and Chinese investors and all kinds of obscure, you know, actors in this yeah. process. I love it. Okay, so here's the thing. At first, because you first said crypto is a way for me to commit my fraud, so I was like, right on. I'm creating McKenna coin like right now. But then, <laughs> but then I think you, I think you, uh, you effectively sold me on the spec where I just get to go. Hey, give me all your money because I'm a smart guy. And they go, What are you going to do with it? I go, Leave that up to me. <laughs> and then I buy like some. Uh, I, I just buy some. A crappy company and go, this is my big idea and I'm getting a big commission later. It's, a, it's off to you guys now. I love it. That's perfect. This is my official reg- resignation from the Oh My Fraud podcast because I got other stuff to do so that hopefully down the road I will be featured on an episode of Oh My Fraud for the Kite, for the kite Spack case. That's what I'm looking for now. I love so it. I- I know we're running short on time, so I want to I want to bring this home with two two questions, Francine. Uh, you don't think one, I brought it home? I no, no, you brought it home. home. Fine, but 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 if I don't ask these questions, then it's going to feel incomplete to me. All right. Okay. All right. Okay. Fine. So, okay. I accept your resignation, Greg. Okay. Number one, quickly, is the do you think there are market solutions to the auditor? And fraud question. So, like blockchain or 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 their proprietary technology, could that make a difference in this area? And the second question, 
and you can answer them both. Uh, uh, is this the hill you die on, Francine? Is this in what in what regard? the auditor and fraud keep, question? Do I give up? The auditor and fraud question. Is this the hill that oh. you die on? So the quirky thing about the technology approach, a lot of the firms are talking about how they're continuing to improve technology around the audit process. They're going to use all kinds of new, you know, AI and analytics and all kinds of things that they're going to do to try to make things more efficient, right? But the ultimate goal uh, or the ultimate result of that would be 100% sampling. Right, right. If you were to take the technology approach to the to the to the limits, which they're all talking about, they're saying they're doing it right, but the ultimate result of that is that they could get to 100% sampling. None of the large accounting firms want to get to 100% mm. sampling. Why? Yeah, because then they have no excuse, right, for not detecting <laughs> no cover. any fraud. They've no got- cover. And secondly. The partners, the people in charge of the firms and the fraud, uh, you know, at the at the firms, they want to maintain a certain level of judgment and discretion. Okay, they do not want to have the answer be okay. The data says this is or isn't the way it is. They want judgment and discretion because that is how they manage the relationship with the client. Mm. Oh yeah, that is what they hold back. That is what they have to offer. They are the arbiter. They are the ones that sign the audit opinion. It's a necessary evil. Mm-hmm. And so they have that that they can hold over the client in the end. And if the answer is in the data, if they have no judgment and discretion left, then they have nothing to sell, right? You don't need a partner, you know, showing up at the meeting and saying, well, in my experience and according to my interpretation of the standards, blah, blah, blah. So so to sum up, you say you're thinking that technology could make a huge difference, but there's going to be... But they'll only go so because, far. They will only go so far. Because egos, right. egos and dollars are going to prevent it from going to where it should go. Well, because it, 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 it would defy or violate the ultimate sort of thing that they've got left, which is... They do not want to have fraud steering them in the face that they have to answer and react to. Mm-hmm. They want to maintain a certain wiggle room to interpret or decide. Right. There's no plausible deniability if you're omniscient. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. right. And the second thing is, you know, is this a hill I'm going to die on? Well, the thing is, is that I feel like there's no point in constantly reminding because to me it's 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 all there there's been litigation there's been lawsuits like colonial bank where the judge said it the standard setters and the regulators say it and actually some people are repeating it right so at the pcob and the sec i've heard it in speeches like the auditors have an obligation to assess assess and plan for and detect fraud okay it's in the standards the problem i'm having right now is that I used to think that we could rein in the bad actors in the audit industry with more enforcement, with more Mm. jail sentences. Mm. So fines, sanctions, sort of letting some people stay at the firms, you know, kind of this, you know, giving people a pass, firms settling, settling litigation, you know, secretly allows it to keep going on. And I thought, you know, if we get somebody like Gerber Gruel, saying like he did the other day, we're going to really up the fines and we're going to really kind of, you know, look at the bad actors who are recidivists and we're going to, you know, kind of start amping up, you know, our reaction to this. 
I used to think that that might put the fear of God. However, what we've seen and what I've seen in the 15 years that I've been writing is instead you have an atmosphere of impunity, an atmosphere of moral hazard that's been created. The ultimate problem is that the firms, the largest global accounting firms, feel that they are too few to fail, that mm. no one is going to take out one more of them for any reason whatsoever. Not any reason. And we've seen almost everything, right? And the worst case was the KPMG fraud recently, where you had the whole top of the audit practice having to be completely taken out like a gangrenous <laughs> limb. Right. Okay. And yet it just regenerates like a hydra. Right. Okay. There were plenty of guys to take over and you just go on and KPMG is still auditing the Fed and still auditing the IRS and still auditing Puerto Rico and still, you know, still there. And in the KPMG case, another thing that came up is that they had another fraud, another scandal hidden by the one that the guys got arrested for. And we found out about the fact that they were cheating like crazy throughout the whole practice, thousands of people probably, on standards and ethics tests that they were ordered to do because of an out, a previous SEC enforcement action. We found out about that because they were investigating the other uh, stealing the regulator's data right. case. And they actually did do enforcement actions against a couple of partners. And the dates of the activity that they highlighted with these other partners happened after their colleagues were arrested. So the partners in KPMG at the top of the firm, the top of the audit firm, got arrested for criminal activity. They were going to go on trial, potentially be sentenced to jail. And yet the SEC, when they finally called out this other fraud that was going on realized that these guys were doing this stuff and then started doing some of this stuff after their colleagues were arrested. And they've been doing stuff like that, even though colleagues have been arrested for insider trading and gone to jail at KPMG, Scott London, at Deloitte, a guy named Tom Flanagan, another guy named Gansman at EY. I mean, you name it over and over and over again and more and more. Okay. I'm seeing the younger folks being net for insider trading from the accounting firms. So nobody is deterred by people getting arrested and going to jail. So what is it going to take? What is it going to take for the firms to be fearful of the, the implications? KPMG did not lose any clients in any big numbers because of the big scandal, the fraud that sent their partners to jail. The market did not react negatively to its clients. Why do I know that? Because I'm involved in academic research with some other professors who are doing this research and looking at the data of the actual clients that were impacted by the scandal. The market said, whatever. <laughs> right. The partners and the people within the firm said, whatever, we're going to keep criming. <laughs> okay. So what is it going to take? Because the ultimate problem is the firms feel that they can act with impunity. They feel that they're protected. And that no one in any government is going to take them out. The only potential is that you'll have another big private litigation situation that somehow will impose an enormous fine or sanction on a firm. It might not happen here in the U.S. It might be outside of the U.S. in one of the big entities. 
let's say if EY Germany got taken out because of uh, Wirecard, would that throw EY Global into the toilet? I don't know. They might do what PwC in Japan did, which is just create a new firm. Yep, shut the firm down and create a new one. So what's the hill that, that I'm going to die on? I'm going out and I'm teaching and I'm talking to students and I'm trying to be optimistic that if we have more good people who are grounded in ethics and professionalism, who understand the stakes for the market, going into the firms out of the schools, if I can tell them what's at stake, if I can show them that it doesn't pay to be involved or associated with these kind of people, that they're going to get their name in the, for the wrong reasons in an SEC enforcement action. They're going to ruin all the, you know, 4.0, you know, great point <laughs> average that they got. Right. If I can get more people in the firms, then we can dilute the impact of this, of this issue. That's my only hope. That's the hope I have to keep going with. That's the flame I have to keep burning because otherwise, Caleb, you're right. You just have to just, you know, cash in your chips. Well, dang, Francine, thank you so much for your time and for, for for all the knowledge that you just gave to us on all this stuff. I Yeah, I appreciate it. And it was great to meet you after all these years great of knowing you. you. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, uh, so it, just on the off chance that there are people who are listening to the podcast who th- this is their first introduction to you, what's the best place that they can learn more about you or read more about your stuff right now? So I'm writing for my newsletter, uh, The Dig on Substack, thedig.substack.com. That's the best place to find me right now. And on Twitter, at ReTheAuditors, R-E, The Auditors, uh, is where I am 24-7. Cool. But right on. Well, Thanks, very Francine. good. Thank you. Thanks again so much for doing this. We appreciate it so much. You don't even You're know. Welcome. 